Welcome back to the Black Menace Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Weaver, and I'm here with my other host. Nate Bird, happy to be on the show as always. Yes, and we have a wonderful guest with us today. We have Kimberly here. Just go ahead and say hi to everyone. Hi, guys. Yes. Do I introduce myself? Or just say hello? Yeah, just give like a brief, I don't know, 10 second introduction okay. and then... Sure. My name is Kimberly Applewhite in the streets, I guess. It depends on what I'm talking about. <laughs> professionally uh, known. Yeah, professionally known as uh, Kimberly Applewhite. I'm a licensed psychologist working in the Salt Lake City area here in Utah. How many other things I'm into. Happy to be here. Love yeah. these guys. So We're happy to have Kimberly here with us today, and we will be asking her lots of questions about um, her experiences Um but right now, we are going to head up back over to Nate for the Menace Moment. Absolutely. So the Menace Moment for this week is a powerhouse of a lady. I wanted to do her last month for A-A-N-H-P-I month. I hope that was it. That yes, right. was that was right? the acronym. Okay. That was right. I wanted to do it last month, um, but we didn't quite get to it. But I wanted to share it um, because uh, her story is just pretty amazing. So her name is Patsy Matsu Mink. And she is, and it's, she was an attorney and politician from Hawaii. Uh, known for her work on advancing women's rights and education. She served as a Democrat in the House of Representatives for 24 years, um, a total of 12 terms uh, from 1965 to 1977 and then 1990 to 2002. And she was the first Asian American and the first woman of color elected to Congress. Mm. Uh, she was born December 6, 1927 in the, on the island of Maui. Uh, she's a third gen generation Japanese American. She graduated valedictorian from Maui High School, class of 1944, and attended two years at University of Hawaii before transferring to the University of Nebraska, which is a wild transition. Mm -hmm. That is quite... To go from Hawaii to Nebraska. What like, a choice. From right. diversity <laughs> and tropics to, like, the middle of nowhere, just... No mountains, yeah. nothing. It's... Uh, you know, as, as is to be expected in, you know, the 40s in Nebraska, she experienced a lot of racism. And she advocated for anti-segregation policies, or she advocated for the removal of segregation policies on campus. Um, and uh, she experienced some illness and had to move back to Hawaii um, to finish her schooling. But when she moved back, she graduated and she applied to 12 different medical schools and was rejected by all of them. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, being a woman of color, Asian American woman in the 40s, you can imagine why she was rejected. Um, and then opted to study law and was accepted to the University of Chicago, where she began in 1948. Wow. And, um, you know, this actually reminded me, do you remember when you did the, the Menace Moment about Ruth Bader Ginsburg right after yes. she passed? Uh -huh. It's kind of like a similar dynamic where, oh. uh, because remember she, after she, um, after, RB, I'm just going to call it RBG, yes. after RBG yes. uh, graduated from law school, top of her class, was it at Yale? Some um, very prestigious. It was a very prestigious school. Very I don't prestigious remember. School. It might have even yeah. been Harvard. I don't remember. She graduated mm -hmm. top of her class, and then she couldn't find work anywhere. Like the only yeah. work that she mm -hmm. could find was as a secretary. Yeah. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, this was something similar. So she. And it was around the same time too. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like in the forties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 40s, yeah. So 50s, around yep. the same time. Yeah. So you know, she was rejected from twelve medical schools, and she was valedictorian in high school. So you know, she was a good college student. Yes. Um, but she met her husband while she was at U Chicago. Um, her husband's name was John Mink. And they married and moved back to Hawaii after Patsy could not find work. So same as, as, as RBG. Um, when she was refused to take the right, or she, she was refused the right to take the bar exam uh, because she lost her Hawaiian territorial residency when she got married. Wow. She challenged the statute. She won the right to take the test and passed the bar, um, but she could not find public or private employment 
because she was married and had a child. So again, like it more, just keeps going. Just it just yeah. gets worse and worse. I just right? like wait. Like, ah. You married? I, I'm assuming. I don't know. I didn't really look it up. I'm assuming John Mink was probably white. You know, she met him in the University of Chicago, um, and I guess like marrying him, or maybe it was just the act of getting married at all. But she married him, and she lost her territorial residency in Hawaii. That's crazy. And then yeah, because she was married and had a child, no one would hire her, which. That's wild. But it was the 40s. Um, or actually, this was the 50s by him. But so after that, she opened her own practice in 1953. Mm. Um, and she hoped to like do some legislative work to change discriminatory customs through law. And so she worked as an attorney for the Hawaiian Territorial Legislature um, in 1955. And then in 1956, she ran for a seat in the Territorial House of Representatives. So like this was before. Oh, yeah, this was like 10 years before mm -hmm. Hawaii had become a state. So it's still a territory. Uh, of the United States. But so she was in the Territorial House of Representatives. She won the race and was the first Japanese American woman to serve in the Territorial House. And then two years later, uh, she was the first woman to the first woman to serve in the Territorial Senate. Um, and she won when she won her campaign for that. She gained national attention when she spoke out in support of the civil rights movement. And then in 1964, she ran for federal office and won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, becoming the first Asian-American woman and the first woman of color uh, to be elected to Congress. She served a total of 12 terms, um, split between representing Hawaii's at-large congressional district from 1965 to 1977, and then the second con congressional district from 1990 to 2002. Um, during that time, she introduced the first comprehensive initiatives under the Early Childhood Education Act and worked on the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. Um, and in 1970, she became the first person to oppose a Supreme Court nominee on the basis of discrimination against women. Wow. She initiated a lawsuit which led to significant changes to presidential authority under the Freedom of Information Act in 1971. So this woman was just a powerhouse. Yeah, like she, she was is. just she working. left and right doing things. And it gets better. Um, in 1972, she co-authored the Title IX Amendment of Higher Education Act. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and it was later renamed the Pat C. T. Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act in 2002. Um, and, you know, most people are very familiar with Title IX, right? That's yeah. what, you know, um, there's a lot of things that go into it, but one of the things that it does is it protects, um, like, marginalized peoples, especially women um, on campuses and protects against discrimination against women, yeah. against sexual harassment, um, among other things. Um, and then, see, on August 30th, 2002, she was hospitalized in Honolulu Straub Clinic in hospital due to complications from chickenpox, and her condition worsened until she passed away on September 28th, 2002, with a viral pneumonia. She was 74 years old. Um, and in recognition of the national morning of her death, the Secretary of Defense ordered all flags and military institutions to be lowered to half-mast in her honor. Um, and she received a national memorial and was honored with a state funeral um, at the Hawaii State Capitol. It was attended by leaders and members of Congress. And women's groups honored Mink by forming a human lay of around 900 women. Oh, my god. They surrounded gosh. the tent uh, where Mink's casket stood at the Capitol Atrium and sang Hawaiian songs. And then she was buried uh, She was buried at the National Memorial Cem Cemetery of the Pacific. Um, and then she, her death had occurred one week after she won the 2002 primary election. Wow. And so she, uh, it was too late for her name to be removed from the ballot. So she was posthumously reelected to Congress on November 5th, 2002. Wow. And then her vacant seat was filled by Ed Case after a special election. And that is the myth, the legend, the icon, Patsy Matsu Mink, a powerhouse of a woman. 
who did a lot for us and uh is obviously still remembered today and her her work lives on through things like the title nine and the right um you know the work that she did for women and, and for children so yeah love that great men's mm-hmm. moment i love the men's moments just because we're learning about people that have impacted history in some small way mm-hmm. which i mean like we all hope to do right especially right, right, locally right. I mean, hopefully we've made a little history. We're part of BYU history now, what we did at with Black Menaces, but that we're just one of the many, right? There's, mm-hmm. again, people saw Black Menaces, but there are so many other Black students that led up to what we did. And so, again, we're all just little parts of history, and I love learning about the ways that people contributed, so that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, on to talking to Kimberly here today. Um, before we get into any questions, um, I just want you to share a little bit more about, like, like a little further into introduction into you, like where are you from, where you grew up. Um, Tell how you, about all your degrees. Uh-huh. All your degrees, yes, and how you ended up in Utah, and Ugh. how you okay, and well. then <laughs> yes, how you ended up in Utah, and then like how we ended up crossing paths, and then we'll go more into um, the, some other questions we have for you. Oh uh, yeah, so I grew up in North Carolina, and I, um, I guess I got into psychology because I knew I wanted to help people. So I grew up wanting to be a teacher, but teachers don't get paid very much in North Carolina. But I was really uh, focused on this aspect of um, the value of mentorship and how uh, just having one adult in your life that could believe in you and motivate you would probably alleviate a lot of problems. So I was like a pretty bright kid, but I struggled with organization. And so by the time I got to middle school, I was already sort of feeling um, just subtle scrutiny from my teachers and it's hard to mm. be like a young black kid and bright and school systems not set up to um, prioritize like evaluating kids in fair ways. So I think that for a long time people just saw me struggle with just one aspect of things with organization. And so when I got to middle school, I had a couple of good teachers and I was like, oh, okay, this is important. So I wanted to be a teacher. And then when I figured out that teachers didn't get paid very much, I was like, okay, so I'll be a superintendent. That's like a top teacher, right? (laughs) But then superintendents don't really work with kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I learned this, you know, cheesy as it is from doing like, you know, the Mormon Young Women's Personal Progress Program, like they encourage you to interview somebody who uh, has a career that you're interested in. Mm. And so that's what I did. So I was like, okay, I'll interview the superintendent. And I didn't know anything about like, oh, he's a lawyer. Like he has all these things to do. But anyway, it wasn't for me. And then when I got to high school um, and thought about psychology, I kind of like intuited in my head, oh, like I bet that people in prisons have like undiagnosed mental health issues. And if they mm. have people that were like care about them, cause I like the town I grew up in was pretty racially segregated and, mm. um, there is one school that was probably, I don't know, 85, 90% black and nobody wanted to go there. Like at when we would depart for middle school, like basically all of the white people would leave that school, even if they were living in the city and they would come to my school. So it was something that I was aware of. Mm. And, uh, you know, people say, oh, don't go over there because it's so violent. There's gangs, there's this and that. But then I would go over there and I'm like, oh, there's like not much going on here. It's just people, you know, living lives. Mm-hmm. Definitely All people are poor words. over there mm-hmm. and and different things that were, you know, objectively true. But so that's kind of why I linked like those experiences, uh, like seeing how people reacted in my town to different um, social issues and linking it to how like a lot of people that end up in adverse uh, situations are probably just profoundly misunderstood or not cared for by their environment. 
And so I thought if uh, psychology and mental health could like rectify that problem, then that's what I would do. And so I was like, oh, okay. And and part of it too was like, I want a doctoral degree. So whatever kind of therapist I yes. was going to be, it was going to be like a terminal degree, kind of like being a superintendent and not a teacher. And so then I kind of went to college blindly. I went to MIU, did a psych major. Psych major is really not so much related to What's humans. MIU? What? What's MIU? NYU. 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 New York oh, NYU. University. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, so did psych major, um, then went to a Jewish school called Yeshiva for graduate school. Oh, finished there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. they, yeah. They were, recent, cool. they were in the news not too long ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. For, <laughs> usually not cool things when they're in the news, <laughs> but like, you know, I enjoyed my experience there. Uh, our graduate school was in the Bronx, and so I got to work with uh, all black and brown kids, really, and mm-hmm. in um, public funded systems and so that was kind of living the dream took a year postdoc in massachusetts working at boston children's hospital in adolescent medicine i really like teenagers because they're raggedy man at a certain age like people (laughs) just really and now in my work i'm like throw them in the trash (laughs) but because they're just so they're like so emotionally nuanced (laughs) like there's just a lot going on and that's what i feel pretty passionate about like people that other people just kind of want to throw out or don't know how to deal with. I'm mm. like, okay, bring them to me. Like, mm. this is um, my sweet spot. So I thought it was going to be adolescence generally. Um, I've kind of left out, but you can look up elsewhere that I also have affinity for the queer community for similar reasons that because where I grew up, they were the people that folks didn't talk about as like having dignified lives. But I'm like, oh, like take me to those people mm. and we'll find them. So, um, did my doctoral research project on uh, queer experiences in the LDS church. And then after a year in Boston, moved out here to Utah. My husband uh, got recruited for a job. He went out here for school and then went over there for school, uh, then got recruited to come back here. So we came back here and then we got stuck for various reasons. Many black people get stuck here. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's all I'll say. It's kind of, I don't know, like, cost of living is okay. Like, you know, we were living in Washington Heights paying, I don't know, $1,100 in rent. Then by the time we moved, we were paying $1,500 in rent. Mm. As soon as we moved out, they raised the rent to $2,000. And now it's like $3,300 to live in, you know, with a whole bunch of Dominicans. You know, nothing on Dominicans, but Mm. like people generally. That you... An area that people are typically like, oh, I don't want to go there, yeah. but it's still super expensive. I loved it there. Yeah, right. I'm anyway. sure it was probably great with like all the Dominicans dancing I in the street. I loved and, it. You know. Playing chess, music out the window, and, the food, and the kindest people. But anyway, but people don't know what they don't know. So a lot right, of right. like the areas of upper Manhattan, you think about being less desirable, though they're where I want to be. Uh, but anyway, they're expensive. And then uh, Boston, Cambridge, expensive. So we oh, come yeah. here and it's like, you know, if our rent gets cut in half, we can buy a home for, you know, we still kind of have New York and Boston prices in our mind when we do things. Mm. You know, we get paid fair. And um, I think the community I've been able to build out here has been meaningful. And so those things are hard to leave. Um so I I did a second postdoc at uh, the University of Utah in their inpatient hospital and then took a job at BYU in the counseling center. And that's where I ran into these guys, mm-hmm. whom I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also, uh, well, 
I guess I don't anyway I don't remember which came first the chicken or the egg but I also work with the gospel choir in the area and so Nate has Nate I don't listen to podcasts I'm sorry but I hope Nate has sung on the podcast because Nate can sing um, Nate has not sung on the podcast <gasps> and this needs to happen da, da, soon da, 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 listen if you want to hear me sing go check out my Instagram I think yeah, I, I check out his Instagram because uh-huh. the boy can sing he can sing he can. anyway hey at Perspectives last year he sang a beautiful song. Made the whole audience shed a tear. It was mm. beautiful. Which one? The change's gonna come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a different one. I even wrote a couple extra verses. I was about to call BYU out, but then I forgot. But why? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like I, I literally forgot the words as I was oh, up there. Oh, I see. I was put into a, a stupor oh. of thought. It <laughs> shut you down. Maybe it wasn't the time <laughs> then, but anyway. So I was at BYU for a couple of years. Was not the environment for me, though. I love the people. Yeah, I want to hear more about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, So now I work in private practice, working with, um, yeah, some pretty, like, nuanced people, I guess. And so, yeah, that is that's me. That's my life. And I have two kids. I didn't mention that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I am married also. And yeah. Life is is pretty good right now. Very cute hey. kids. They're so cute. Your daughter still refuses to give me a high five every time I see her. Oh, but she knows and loves you so <laughs> much. She's just the, yeah. She's giving me the evil eye. <laughs> but she remembers, though. I have a picture of you holding pity when she's so little. Oh, yeah. That, doing mm-hmm, at Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving with the Black Student Union. Yeah, so anyway, it was. Well, cool. So, you're spe- so what do you specialize in with with um with your practice yeah i uh so i was trained psychodynamically which is like freud stuff so looking at relationships and drives and i don't know on a basic level i don't really speak that language though we love freud i yeah i'm great (laughs) somebody's got to (laughs) and a lot of what he said was wise in some ways but like built from a system that you know uh, over-pathologized women and, and lots of things. So anyway, uh, the what really attracted me early on to how I think about working with people is family system theory that talks about how um, people are connected by their relationships and relationship systems kind of work like cells. And, you know, mm. you can kind of uh, think about really what was powerful to me is thinking about nothing being good or bad it's just how it functions in the system so Mm. there's lots of reasons why things happen that people might judge as bad but that make a system function things like affairs or things like um, addictions all kinds of things you look at why it has function in the system Mm. so that was meaningful to me especially with the kind of people I wanted to work with Um, And so then that led me to dialectical behavior therapy, which kind of takes that approach from a behavioral framework. So behaviorism looks at like how we learn stuff, Um, you know, like Pavlov's dogs and like Mm. reward systems and all of that. Um, But also has tries to maintain a non-judgmental stance about people. And so the people that benefit from dialectical behavior therapy um, are people who have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So they tend to be like interpersonally challenging kind of folks or people who um, are suicidal or deal with chronic self-harm, who might not have a stable sense of self, who tend to like engage in risk-taking behaviors, basically because they don't know, they haven't been in a place where the environment will give them 
what they expect every time. So like Mm -hmm. if you think about a kid who like asks a parent for something and the parent gives it to them, then like that kid learns that their parent is reliable and that they do that enough over time. Then like the kid is like, oh, great, we're, we're good. This is what you call like. Uh, secure relationships as they develop, right? But then some people, you know, you go to people and they do one thing and then you go to them the next day and they do another thing. And then that creates a lot of uncertainty about what you're going to get from people. Mm -hmm. I think you can kind of describe the experience of racism, especially in the modern day in the same way, especially here where you think that you, like you can go to people with something and they're nice to you, but then the next minute you might hear them say something or they might do Mm. something or they might hold on to something that hurts you. And so then that's confusing, right? And I can imagine that would be especially confusing for for kids. Oh yeah, for sure. So we get a lot of kids. So I see a lot of uh, transracial adoptees right now where Mm. like, you know, they they wake up every day to parents who don't look like them, even if their Mm -hmm. parents love them and show them all kinds of care. There's just a sense that the environment doesn't fit. Yeah. them and then they go into school systems mm, yeah. that may not be doing um right things or fair things and then you uh you stand up for yourself in ways that feel appropriate sometimes i think about like when i was a kid the uh th- these kids that were older than me made fun of me because my hair was greasy because they didn't understand that like i needed to do different things to take care of my hair mm-hmm. and they called me grease monkey because mm. racism goes deep oh wow yeah. it goes deep that's like they don't even Bless that's him. kind of a crazy. It's crazy. That's, that's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. If I want to say that, I, that's oh, that's know. a very racially motivated like uh, for, mm-hmm. um, name to call somebody. Yeah. And so. they they don't know, but they know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just in the air conditioning vent, especially where I grew up. But one day I got on the bus and I had like a jar of Isoplus because you know I'm a child of the '90s. We know better <laughs> now, but I had a jar of Isoplus. I put like a ball of paper in it and like jammed it in the isoplus and then just lobbed it in the back of the bus at these kids. And then I got in trouble, of course. And maybe there were better ways to stick up for myself. But like, I don't think anybody ever talked to those kids about what they said or asked Mm. me what happened. That's usually how it goes. It is how it goes. And so there's there's many ways that we can uh, like have people end up with an invalidating environment. Racism is one, but then people have experienced other things that lead them to kind of crisis level behaviors to manage things. Um, And so dialectical behavior therapy helps people hold the balance of things that they need to change in order to have a life that they want to live, but also um, accepting why what they're doing makes sense in the contents that or context that they came from. So it goes back to those ideas that nothing is really good or bad. It's just like what functions and what is going to work moving forward. And so, yeah, that's my my happy place. So I see people of all ages now. And, um, you know, clients can text me all the time. So I've always got my phone on me. But I, I don't know, like there's these beebs or whatever, like challenges to say, like describe your profession in the worst way and i'm like i mine is like binge watching episodes of mari like over and over like i just love the train wrecks uh-huh. of, <laughs> especially doing a lot of telehealth work i like emotionally complex like you know crisis level behavior in therapy because those people deserve a life worth living too and they deserve somebody who can understand where they're coming from and help them figure out what they're trying to do so that mm-hmm. they can live you know yeah absolutely so i I do want i want to talk more about um like racial identity and and transracial adoptees in utah because i feel like that's a really important topic Mm -hmm. 
Um, but before that, I want to ask, how was your experience uh, working as a therapist at BYU and like as a black woman at BYU? What was that like? Uh, well, I usually, I weirdly, the other day when I was trying to recall what it was like working at BYU, kind of like what you were talking about before we got on, I was like, gosh, I don't remember a lot of the things <laughs> that happened now because it was kind of wild. Um, but usually how I start this off is, uh, so uh, at the beginning of the year, faculty meets uh, like a week before students come, I don't know. And they have all these different orientation type of meetings. And so we go to this, it's called University Conference. And one of the first things I remember was like, you know, we sing a hymn and all I hear are all these dudes singing. And I'm like, where do all the ladies go? Because <laughs> they're here already. These deep voices like, what? It was, it's a bizarre experience. Like I've never had that in church or really anywhere else, but it's just all this deep rumble, rumble, rumble. <laughs> um, and really since I've left BYU, the University Conference talks have been like increasingly um, interesting. But when I was there, they were a little bit, I don't know, really rah-rah BYU. And I you like I didn't go to BYU for undergrad, so I didn't understand what the big deal was. At that time, I just needed a job. And so mm. I was, people were there like being at BYU was the most meaningful thing in their lives mm. and like – being a BYU professor was such an important part of their identity. And I just kind of like, I didn't come with that perspective. And Wait, so then it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Quick question with that. Did anyone like warn you as well in terms of like black people or brown people or women or anything in, in, in a negative way? Cause like you're having the people who are like, this is the best, but was there anyone who was, cause I had that. I felt like of the more like, side eye approach as I came here. So considering like yeah. you didn't come here as a student. So. Yeah, I didn't really have anybody to advise me the other way. Like coming from the South, like BYU was kind of like salvation for people, right? Like mm. that's where you go when you, you know, you want to be, you want to be Mormon with other Mormons and you don't want people to challenge you. And there was definitely like an aspect of that that was attractive to me. Being in New York is not quite the same. Like being LDS in New York is actually quite fun because everybody just kind of talks and asks questions and understands each other. But it wasn't like that in the South. And so nobody really told me any different. And actually mm. people would always say, oh, you'll end up there one day. And I was like, okay. But mm. when I was leaving university conference, this random woman comes up to me and was like, be careful. BYU challenges your testimony more than any other place. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just got here. <laughs> but I often say, like, if that lady didn't tell me that, then I probably would have had, like, a much worse experience because mm -hmm. I think I did go in expecting, especially growing up Mormon out east, like, I think that Mormons out there, like, want to be better. Like, there's this culture of not being better than people to show off, but being better because if you're like reflecting Christ in his life, then that's what you should want to be. Like people should look at you and see Christ reflected. And so like the Mormons in our town that had business, they were the nicest people and everybody knew that. Like, yeah. And mm -hmm. so I, I feel like the toxic behavior that we see in Utah is not encouraged, nor is it really allowed because I feel like you have other parts of your identity that kind of have to exist. I don't know. But also or, they have yeah. too much power here. I don't mm, think yeah. that people have to be any different mm. than anybody else because they just hold 
all of the control. Even mm. before I worked at BYU, I had the experience at the hospital I was working at where a family didn't, really they didn't like something that I said, and it was like he said, she said, whatever, um, to their daughter. And so then, like, on the last day of mission, they were like, well, we don't like this thing that you did. I didn't do what they thought I was doing. And we've talked to our stake president, who's on the board at Wait, the U, and he's he's going to help us decide if we want disciplinary action. This is all without, what? like, talking wow. to me. And so I learned, like, fairly Not quickly. Stake that, president. Yeah, I'm like, people, the church has unnecessary power here and mm. i think that there's no separation of church and state yeah it it's strange but people don't but i expected still that people would be better because they held the, this identity that had guided me to be better mm. throughout my life um and it just wasn't always the case because people were um preoccupied with other things and they they did engage in behaviors that i recognized like being nice and smiling, like I got complimented all the time. Oh my gosh, I love your hair. I love your dress. But like when I tried to do things that were meaningful, they often got shut down or put in like unnecessary red tape, like working with a gospel choir. Uh, it's like, who owns the gospel choir? Nobody knows. But like as soon as you try to do something, then somebody's telling you you can't do it. Yep. Like mm -hmm. gospel choir can't sing at devotional because the devotional is decided by the board of trustees or something, or like the people from the board or music school, you have to have a music school sponsor. I'm like, there's no black kids in the music school. Mm. So like, when are you mm -hmm. ever going to have any representation there? Meanwhile, the music students are like, I don't want to do devotional. Literally, so it just felt like a right. mismatch. Yeah. And um, there wasn't, I, I took a part-time position and there wasn't great onboarding. Um, and so for a lot of reasons, I just felt pretty isolated from what was going mm. on. But then also... Being black, people didn't always know that I was a member of the church. So people would do things, wow. even though I'm supposed mm. to like to work in caps, I have to be a temple recommend holding person. And that's always yeah, been the case. Well, and that's, yeah. that's the rule on BYU campus from what I know. Like they only hire people who not just in caps, but mm. all, yeah. all, all at the time, I've... the professors could be non-members, yeah. but oh, okay. people in caps had to be temple okay. recommend holders okay. and i don't know why that was but now it is yeah across yeah. the board okay. i had a a professor of mine tell me that uh when they worked as a therapist at byu they were instructed never to let a student leave their office without like testifying like bearing their testimony or something like oh, that. oh that's so interesting so that could have something to do with it that's so interesting i did not experience that i feel yeah. like we had a lot of underground like I'm sure. I don't yeah. know what it was. It was a good bunch of people, I think. But um, they, what was I saying? I was talking about. Um, oh. oh, so people didn't always know, and so like if a student came and they requested a non-LDS therapist, they would just show up in my schedule, and I'd be like, "But wait, really? <laughs> like people who had wow. never had a conversation with me or knew anything about me were just like, oh, they asked for a non-LDS therapist, so they got put in your schedule.' And I'm like, okay, well, uh. they're gonna have a problem then, because we did have the students sometimes were non-LDS, and they could go mm. with them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, I found that it was really hard to advocate for things that were. Um, like clinically appropriate if people didn't know that I was LDS because how are you going to like people come to my office and be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so distraught. My, my partner is viewing pornography and I'd be like, okay, tell me about why that is uh, 
impacting you in this way and they'll be like oh she doesn't get it because she's not LDS but that's what I'm supposed to do right like yeah. I, I can't just make assumptions about why something is affecting you the way it is mm-hmm. um and then sometimes like students would be mean and kind of report me in underhanded ways and uh from what I've heard the reporting on like POC BIPOC employees yeah. is, is crazy. Mm-hmm. Or just like employees who even touch that. Just like I know there are white professors who advocate in their classes and also mm-hmm. get reported in crazy mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we anyway. saw a little bit of it with that video that came out during the pandemic where they just listed all the, the like oh, all the yeah. professors that were. Oh, yeah. but just like, or mm-hmm. even just like when I was TAing, like I remember reading the, um, what are the, the reviews the students write to mm-hmm. the professor mm-hmm. that I work with? Was crazy, and this was a white man still. But, and I know I've heard from even like um, certain professors who are black and brown. I've heard them also receive when they do like their more like one hundred level classes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. crazy um, reviews and critiques. But yeah, the reporting have, is a little unhinged at BYU, in my it, opinion. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, and they have comment cards, and they didn't necessarily have to go to us. But like, if a student wanted to transfer from you, then you wouldn't know it until they had been assigned to somebody else, and then like. Your supervisor would be CC'd and they'd be like, this is what they said. And I'm like, but what if it like it was just kind of it it put me on edge a lot of the time. So I didn't feel like I could ever really relax. And mm. then, um, yeah, just people would say stuff and there would be interventions put in place. And then because I only got reviewed once a year, it wouldn't be until like the end of the year that I'd be like, but wait, that wasn't true. So people just weren't talking to me to confirm mm. whether things were justified what folks were saying they would just assume that they were true um and so that was really difficult for me because uh like my integrity as a professional is important to me yeah so then it just wasn't a fit oh and then there was only one other uh black psychologist working there and she was from france and people used to get us confused like how is it possible okay <laughs> i know this oh I yeah know we know her and yeah I there's no they don't sound the same don't they don't look, look, the, look, same. look the same you don't the walk same the same like you it's the it's, it's just crazy. your voice at all. like i can hear both of your voices in my ears right now and i'm like they're so different because <laughs> she's an accent she's an accent yeah. because she grew up from france, from yeah. france. yeah that's oh wild. wow, that's so funny. It was it was wild, <laughs> and then I don't know, but I, as you know, I love you guys. Like I love working with the student. I love working with all students. I love my relationships with the Black Student Union, and there were great people. Like I said, in caps, what they were doing for the queer community was good. What mm-hmm. they were doing um, with people who felt like they had pornography addictions, they like secretly take oh, them man. in and say like they try to destigmatize mm. like the shame that people feel around it so there's lots of of good people now uh, there's been a lot of turnover since i left but there were people there that were doing a lot of great work that i respected but because of kind of the systems there i always felt disconnected from them mm. and then i tried to get like a black faculty group going and they they were saved like we can't do that. But then how is it on MLK Day or whatever? They always can find the one black faculty member to come and talk. Like mm-hmm. they must have had a list somewhere where they knew, mm-hmm. but like they mm-hmm. weren't telling us yes. necessarily to oh, yeah. gather. And then you would talk to people and they'd be like, oh, I don't know, the politics, optics. And mm-hmm. anyway, so I remember asking for a list of, of black students on campus so that we could just reach out to mm-hmm. black students. And they were like, oh, we don't have that information. I'm like, 
you have that information. Like you, you can put out demographics whenever you want. You have the information. You can give it to us. Mm-hmm. And that was me asking as the Black Student Union president. I was like, we want to out make sure we reach out to Black students so that they know because you're not advertising. So we want to make sure that Black students know, hey, you can come to Black Student Union, and they wouldn't give it to us. But yeah, it's BYU is an interesting place. It is an interesting um, place. BYU is actually race neutral, like apparently, and this is like the reason why they like don't have this list. They do have it though, like they have everyone's demographics. But apparently universities can be um, like, I forget the other term when you like recognize race and BYU Mm. is like down as like a race neutral school. So, for example, that means like if you mention it in your application, okay, cool. But if you don't, they like don't take that into consideration, which Mm. is like really an interesting thing anyway. But they're considered like a race neutral school, which is why they're always like, we don't have a list Mm. because technically they don't, but they do have demographics of every single person who attends BYU. And the only way you could get a list from what I knew, which is why the black faculty thing, they were all just like so touchy about it was the MSS office had access to like lists of black and brown students. And so you could go to the MSS office and they could send it out because for some reason they were allowed to, if it came to like the MSS Mm -hmm. system, like if you went to SOAR or you came to one of the activities and you were listed as a black person, like the MSS office could email you. They could email specifically black students, but Mm -hmm. the BYU themselves never wanted to touch that or like Mm -hmm. even hand you or get involved. It was all like involuntary. Like again, MSS office, black students knew about the office the least. Again, that's a whole nother topic, but yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of red tape where it just doesn't feel super effective or necessary. And it was draining after a while, even with, like, the amount of good. I mean, they get a lot of money. They have a lot of people. They put mm-hmm. a lot of high-quality programs. Um, I felt like President Worthen was a good example of mm-hmm. uh, how to at least respond appropriately to things that were happening. and. Um, be supportive, be apologetic, um, show Christ-like love to people. and But yeah, it was just kind of challenging. On the admissions point, I was remembering there was an interview that's out there on the internet still, some forum where I know Darius Gray was there, but I don't remember who else. But I think Alice Birch, which is like a local community member here, asked oh, why man. they don't like do more intentional recruiting in um, black and brown communities. And the implication was made that they would not be as academically prepared. And and it was like a clear implication too. Mm. Um, And so, you know, that's the danger with like race neutral or colorblind approaches from the research. You end up putting policies into place that undermine any kind of equity goals you might achieve because you're not, you're not looking like, how can you see if you are blind? So exactly. Anyway. Bless them. It was it was a good <laughs> learning experience. Um, yeah, I'm not even one of those that's like, don't go there, don't send your kids there. It just was not. It wasn't the welcoming place I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And if I think if you could get enough people who can like inform you that you might have like a different experience, but that was mine. That makes sense. Yeah, I think informed consent is huge when you go to BYU, mm-hmm. and uh, rarely do you get that, you know, because the people that are in your, you know, that were in my ward back at home, 
were all people that had had a great time at BYU. Mm-hmm. Anybody that didn't have a good time was probably not going to be like in church with me. And so the only experiences I ever heard was, oh, we had a great time. We got, you know, I met my wife at BYU. Mm-hmm. We got married and yada, yada, this and that. And it's going to be the best experience. And everybody says, Utah is Zion. And then I got to Utah and I was like, this is not uh, what I was told it was going to be, you know? So it was definitely a, a shock and uh, an adjustment. And like you said, very draining mm-hmm. after a while. Yeah. Yeah. All the people who told me to were, I mean, they're all white people respectfully in my home ward as well. Like people who fit in pretty easily at BYU, people who don't have identities that people are going to challenge based on just looking at you and even lived experience. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who, yeah, you might have grown up in California, but being, being LDS is your whole identity. You know what I mean? Like you white this makes you not have an identity you know what I mean like your identity you clung to your whole life was being LDS and so of course being able to have this experience where it's like oh my I get to live my identity in the fullest way the same way that like black students black kids feel when they go to HBCU mm-hmm. that's how white LDS kids feel when they get to BYU and it's a majority so, white LDS culture right now yeah. like it's not but like I remember weren't you there one time it was like you me and another person and like they were doing uh this is what's bad. Like, you know, BYU does like different conferences in the summertime or whatever. And so it brings in like different <laughs> generations of people. And so sometimes you like see people in common areas and you just know they're going to say something silly. Oh my goodness. You remember I, this? I think I there are some like say. old, or some, uh, you know, seasoned people, seasoned <laughs> white people in the, in the like common area of the student center. And they were like, oh, where in Africa are you from? And we're like, none of us, none of us are from Africa. We don't, like, we don't even look We really don't. We really don't. Right, not even. You know, I tire of these, like, it's always been a problem, I think, how I've been able to distinguish um, what's white LDS culture from LDS culture. is like, in New York, nobody asks you things like, how you join the church when your parents convert it. Like, it just does not matter. Mm -hmm. But in places where it's majority white people, even here, even with people who have, like, LDS backgrounds but are no longer in the church anymore, there's all kinds of assumptions that people make. Mm -hmm. Oh, your family must have converted. When, like, this is the only religious tradition that I know. And so asking me questions like that is another form of isolation. And it's I just think, an automatic assumption that you don't belong. Mm-hmm. And that's white LDS culture. Like so much of that, I don't know. I, I choose to believe that that is white LDS culture and not like things that I hold important or dear to me because I don't know. White's going to white. In the church. In the church, out the church. So yeah, yeah. like they, yeah. When I did my dissertation, or I'm not supposed to call it that because I went to a society program, whatever. When I did my research project uh, mm-hmm. and I came out here to interview people. So it was a lot of queer folks uh, in various, like, they were mostly in the church, but kind of out, mostly in. And the amount of times that people thought that I wasn't LDS, and I'm like, why would I even be interested in this question? Now everybody's this interested, but like, why would I be interested? So like, 100%. they would explain mm-hmm. to me all of these things about LDS culture as though I didn't know, just from looking at me. Mm. And I just, it it's remarkable. So white's going to white. Absolutely. Yeah. This is why I always tell people here, when I meet people, 
even though I'm like not super involved in the church, I still let people know that like that's my background. So like we're on the same level. I don't know if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. I always lead with I went to BYU. I graduated from BYU. Not in like this, oh, I'm so proud. I went to the Y way, but in this, like, I, I understand you don't need to treat me like an other. I am mm -hmm. with you more than I am against you, even if I'm not active. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I am more with you, friend. So, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, throw in a mission that I served there. Then people are like, oh, wow, you really get it. And I'm like, yeah. I do. And I hate That's, that. You, like, know, I what hate I'm but you know what I'm talking about? That when yeah. you identify yourself in that way and you're proving, mm -hmm. their trust in you or like the way they even talk to you kind of mm -hmm. shifts. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've ever experienced that. but Yeah, I used to like hypothesize, like when I was writing myself about queer people and you know how like bishops, were, everybody really, well, not everybody, but many people will say invalidating things or kind of deny people's queer experience for a long time. And I'm like, the the in-group preservation need in the LDS church is so strong that like to be in the in-group, especially as a black person, you have to do so much signaling and mm. then people know that you're in. And then once you're in, it's a struggle. They don't want to see you as a member of the out group. And so then they'll like tamp down people's experiences like, oh, don't complain. Like we're all unified. We're all children of God. Like. It doesn't matter. Like these other forms of identity don't matter because they Ooh. they value this in group preservation, and they don't realize that many of us don't need to have those rigid layers on, um, like how we identify to also feel like we're a part. Like if I'm a child of God, the Lord made me this way, and so I'm not gonna be ashamed of any of the lenses that He's given me. LDS being one and black being another and black LDS being another because they're like, you know, mm -hmm. anyway, what? Go, Nate, because I've been talking. Oh, no, that was, yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. I, what you said, being black, being LDS, and then being black and LDS, that's three separate things for mm -hmm. sure. It's, a, it's an interesting mm. experience. So jumping out of the the BYU experience and just kind of more into like your Utah experience overall um as you've been as you've worked with different populations what kind of uh like what kind of things have you seen with racial identity um you know what um what things concern you what things do you see that are good and like how do you think that could be helped yeah i think uh i don't know there's probably like a lifespan approach you could take with this so like for kids we have a lot of transracial adoptees here i mean there's there's black families having children too we have a lot of transracial adoptees mm -hmm. and there's not many uh districts out here where you can have mostly kids of color or even like i don't know just a fair balance of things like i grew up with a balance of different kinds of people um and so there's a lot of uh actions from like school systems for example that are invalidating look at davis county school district with the federal investigation of how racism was just going unchecked mm -hmm. like and you know kids would be called the n-word kids would get teased like that you know somebody would be like have this unfair treatment like over classification of black kids in special ed like these things were happening and stuff just went unchecked and in these environments, uh, you know, the kids are struggling. And sometimes uh, I think 
I don't know if this is white LDS culture or what, but the socialization strategy here is like, don't say anything, like be polite, like don't challenge people when you're having problems with things. And so like a lot of the kids that come to my office, their parents know that they're having some kind of identity issue, but don't always know how to help them. Mm. And like in the extreme, have been doing things to invalidate their experiences. No, I don't think that that was racism. I think that that was this other thing, or maybe you misunderstood the situation. Um, People who were, for all intents and purposes, really smart folks who should be able to recognize, forget that like most kids experience uh, racism uh, between the ages of eight and 10. And so if you're, your elementary school kid comes to you with something that happened that they feel weird about. It's a time to go to them and not be like, Oh no, you misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at racial socialization strategies, there's five that you can use. So, um, uh, teaching kids to be proud of their identity as black people, preparing them for the possibility of bias in their environment. Um, Using a colorblind approach that's like, ah, oh, you know, you can do anything, you can be anything that you want to be. Um, fostering mistrust for people in other communities, like, oh, yeah, white people gonna, maybe white people gonna white is a form of mistrust potentially. And yeah. then the fifth <laughs> one is, sorry, I mean, I'm not gonna pretend I mean, like a perfect, that, that but it is, it's a strategy, yeah. right? Yes. It's a strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. fifth one is silence, which is also a strategy, but. Uh, silence is the one that's most damaging and by the research is the one that white people are most likely to use. And so then when you look mm-hmm. at what uh, is likely happening in transracial adoptee families, that people might use a combination of colorblind and silence approaches where, and these things are good. Like black culture is full of colorblind messaging. Like Nas, I can't, well, no, because in the verse, but I know I can't be what I want to be. If I work hard at it, I'll be where I want to be. It's colorblind messaging, but then it's in the context of pride in identity. Like we were Mm. kings and queens in Africa and stuff like that. And so preparing kids for the possibility of bias and encouraging them to have pride in their identity are the things that are most protective um, from a mental health standpoint for black kids. And so sometimes we just don't know if every parent is doing this stuff or even in the environment, if that is like the the quote unquote right thing to do. Like we know a child who, um, you know, was doing this basic uh, slavery stuff in in South Georgia. You know they'll have the Wait, kids be slave masters, no, they weren't. and the color oh, kids be slaves. Like capture the flag, or, but with slaves. Yeah, like, underground like just some crazy stuff, yeah. like playing underground railroad. I in made school. a TikTok about that a while ago. Yeah, and then you'll have like in in 2020 when George Floyd stuff was coming out. You know, people in um, a certain neighborhood uh, were saying things like, "Oh, you know, George Floyd was a criminal," and you know all of these things. Um, anyway, so there was a a kid, a, a black boy that I know that was uh, coming into conflict with classmates because they were saying these things. And when their mom, who is white, went to advocate for them, um, the principal apparently said, it's your fault that your child is having this problem because you've taught him to see himself as a black child. Oh my and gosh. if you didn't prepare him for the possibility of bias, then he wouldn't see it. What? It's wild. It's wild times, you know. Oh, it's the, it's oh, the I was a parent, same. I don't even Goodness. know what I would say to that. Like, I can't even. I mean, as a black parent, I would be so 
like thrown but for a I loop. But I don't think that so they would say know. it us. Oh, that's true. Because I was like, I know a white parent probably is not equipped to even handle what that, because I'm like, what would I say back to that? Mm. Yeah, luckily wow, this one really... is. I call her that woman. But this is the same district where, you know, our friend Natalie Klein is up like Rob Ross has been buying. Mm. And so the the forces out there are strong. And so. Oh, yeah, they're coming together in the. They're coming together in the school districts from what I know. Like I know a lot of black mm-hmm. educators who do work here and mm-hmm. um, a lot of black families, a lot of black parents who have young kids who are very serious about yeah. making change and mm-hmm. standing up for it, which is good because these kids are having tra- these are traumatic experiences, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Very like, traumatic. Mm-hmm. A principal saying that is traumatic. Mm-hmm. Being called the N-word at seven years old is traumatic. Yeah. These mm-hmm. things or even I just I can't even imagine what black women like the black young girls go through with their yeah. self-esteem and identity. Mm-hmm. These are traumatic experiences that will take years like having less traumatic experiences and still understanding the way I had to formulate my racial identity, identity being growing up in the LDS church parallel to white people and black people so much of my life. I cannot imagine not even having the black parallel um, that these students go through. Um, so, but I know a lot of people are really fighting this fight, um, mm-hmm. just like through my sorority, the sores that I know here oh, yeah. with young kids, they, they're not playing, they yeah. are not playing, which they should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even if nothing, even if nothing racial happened, just the trauma of being black in an all white or mostly mm-hmm. white space, that's traumatic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Because like, I remember for me growing up, uh, because I was raised as a member of the church, pretty much everybody that I knew and like all the people around me were white people. And I tried to fit in as best I could, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't fit in all the way. I always felt like I was on the outside and those kids recognized that too. And so I was usually like a scapegoat or one that got picked on quite a bit. I remember, and I talked about this like on an interview that I did, but I I remember like one time um, I was at Cub Scouts and we lived maybe like a 10 minute walk from the church mm. and I was just getting picked. I always got picked on, but I was getting picked on pretty bad this one particular day by these kids. And they just kept messing with me and messing with me to the point where I just like walked out of the church building in the middle of Cub Scouts meeting and just started walking home. And so when my dad came and picked me up, he couldn't find me mm. because I had just left. And then, you know, here I am. I think I was probably eight years old at the time, like brand new to Cub Scouts. And I just mm. felt so alone and isolated. Mm. I was like, well, I'm just going to leave this situation, you know? And, um, that's something that, like, I didn't, you know, obviously I didn't really process at the time. I was just like, oh, I feel bad. I'm going to go. But thinking back on that now, that's very traumatic to go through mm-hmm. at such a young age, to feel that isolated and that alone, to where, you know, you're in an environment where you're supposed to be, you're supposed to feel loved, you're supposed to feel accepted, and you just feel isolated from everyone. Mm-hmm. And that was a constant theme throughout my childhood, is that feeling of isolation, mm-hmm. um, you know, in within the church. Like, being friends with kids, but also knowing that, like, there's a difference here. They don't quite accept me um, in the way that I want to be accepted or in the way that they might accept, you know, another peer that's white. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, top to bottom, the system's not designed to validate our experiences. Like, you know, in church systems or out of church systems, like you think about clinically, the diagnosis of PTSD has changed, which makes it harder for people who kind of experience racism in the way that we've experienced it mm-hmm. to quantify those as traumatic mm-hmm. experiences yeah. by the definitions they've changed a lot of things that just make it more difficult and so a while, for a while there you have people that were doing research on race-based traumatic stress and then for a few years it stopped a little bit mm-hmm. and they're like let's try to figure out what else to call it because the DSM is being whack and then i think that there's a reemergence of saying no like these are traumatic experiences. Mm. They do something to the body and our brains. And everybody 
the reverse racism is not a thing. The the system of racism has impacted all of our brains yeah. that in in a way that we need to be mindful of what our our bodies are telling us so that we don't like just the implications of like untended to impacts of racism down the road kills our bodies on the inside like high blood pressure heart disease like just so many things where you know clinically black people um are often uh worse off like symptom wise by the time they come to therapy because i i don't know like spend so much time like holding it in, making do, getting by, being strong, whatever. Mm -hmm. We have all of these, like, wonderful cultural aspects in our community of strength. But when it comes to mental health, there's just an imbalance of how long we have to be strong before we go and get help. But the system has not made it easy or accessible for us to recognize that what we're going through really is, like, meaningful and and, and in need of of change or adjustment. Yeah. Mm. Um, you saying that makes me think about how I've always wanted to like explore in therapy, like more about my racial experience, um, just in the church or even like, um, I haven't spoken to this. I spoke to it a little bit in black medicine, but just in the sense of like, um, just the inter- the way I internalize racism, even as like a middle schooler mm-hmm. and like, um, the way I transformed my own racial identity and then like going to BYU, but I've never felt like a therapist has been really equipped to have those conversations with me i don't know if that's a conversation i should have with a therapist um i think i would love to like learn more about that i have a lot of stuff i'd love to talk to therapists about but i think that's something that i do want to explore at one point in my life but i mean utah all the black therapists i know them yeah um, or they don't take my insurance well, maybe mm. yes well that's true <laughs> yes yeah. it's one of the two they don't take my insurance or um i know them it's literally one of the two and mm-hmm. um so i'm kind of stuck while i'm here but I hopefully when I leave Utah one day, I would love to maybe have a therapist that I could really talk about those things with because I feel like those are experiences. I mean, I feel like I've worked through them in my cognitive mind, but I definitely think, um, you know, like all my therapist always tells me, there's always things that impact the way I show up now um, and and just being aware of those things and, and really bringing to light just so I can be like, dang, that is impacting me mm-hmm. in this small way. But just cracking that open is always good. I, I love those moments in therapy. So, yeah. If you think about like what we know about trauma falls into four basic categories of things like when you re-experience like memories or aspects of a trauma, like if something about your arousal level has changed or either you don't take in very much or you take in too many things, Mm. uh, like an increase of negative emotions and like just a tendency to avoid things. And so like if I think about my life as a black LDS person, it doesn't take a lot for me to re-experience painful things like when you talk about isolation like I feel that in my body Mm. like going to church dances and nobody would ask you to dance or like um, oh wow I forgot about those experiences like can you imagine like uh, every month Mm. the first Saturday going and like getting all excited and then being like oh no like gonna sit in the corner now or hearing the things that people told my brother when he started to date, like parents paying their daughters off so they wouldn't like date him anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, and so it's really hard when you come across people who don't understand and aren't willing to understand. It just brings this whole response mm-hmm. back where sometimes I feel so mad that I got to say something. So like, if you catch me 
you know, Salt Lake Trib catches me on a subject. I'm like, hey, <laughs> I have to go like, not the, not the Salt Lake Tribune. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite catch me on something. So, you know, you do a little Google, especially under Apple White, you'll find all kinds of things oh, that I gosh. said. You have to say. So I learned to that's like, you know. That's you know is not owned by the church. That's, that's a real Come on. I gotta take a nap. Or I'm feeling like I'm shrinking or being something less than or trying to be more ecumenical or like, uh, show that I have shared experiences, but like not fully embracing all of who I am. And yeah, mm. I'm not super into any of that in terms of the life I want to live at this point, but I definitely recognize it all the time. And so yeah, you ask your therapist to explore this. So, um, yeah. My therapists right now are, are white women and they're great. Wah, wah, wah. I just don't, I don't feel like I want to share that in particular, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. mm. I get that feeling just like I'll slightly mention things and I don't know. I just need to know that you're, I need to understand where you are in your own original journey for me to even be as a black person mm-hmm. to want to have that conversation with you. Even if you like studied it, but are you really living this every day? Cause if you're not, I don't think that I would, you would be the person for me to discuss that with just for me, which mm-hmm. is why I want to leave it to like a black or another Brown therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I just had, personally, I, I had <laughs> a, I had a, a white therapist for a little bit and they were great um but i also at the same time felt like there was sympathy but not a lot of empathy and i feel like yeah. that was kind of like i don't want to be pitied here i want to like work through this exactly but i also need you to kind of understand where i'm coming from for me to be able to work through this yep and uh, i feel like unfortunately with with most therapists that are not um that are not black or brown you're going to have a tough time being able to connect on that level. It's Mm going to be very difficult for them to understand unless they've really taken the time to research, to, to like to make a deep dive into it. Like if Dr. Rue was a therapist, I, oh, know, yeah, no. I would go away. If he was a therapist, I'd be like, okay, <laughs> let me tell you this, this, and this. And yeah. I know that what I would say, he's not going to try to, he's not going to be confused by what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that's part of mm-hmm. it too. Like I think sometimes just because in therapy, I try to be as candid as possible. I say what I think. I don't really, mm-hmm. you can tell me it's wrong, but I'm going to say what I think naturally. Sure. And I think when it comes to race, when I don't, again, I've never had a black therapist, but again, all my therapists have been white women who have done great, done me great in all other ways. But just when it comes to that, I feel like I have to like explain what I'm saying or like you're going to take this wrong. Or when I say white people do too much, yeah, I don't mean every single white, like I don't want you, I don't know mm-hmm. where you're at mm-hmm. in terms of, and granted, most therapists have gone through like some type of bias training and things like that. You would think. But, okay. Maybe not. Maybe not. You would know better than I <laughs> would. But There's because also an intimidation factor too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Intimidated by you. And I like I yeah. brought this up in my employment all the time. I'm like, you guys have choices on whether you're gonna work with a black person, mm. like in in like peer to peer, and whether you see black people, like you have choices. I don't feel like I have the same mm. set of choices, mm-hmm. and then my values call me to seeing people, but they, you know, other people have the choice, and so it is a choice to put yourself in the proximity with people yep. um, and understand them better or not. Like at the type of place that I work, that is, uh, you know designed for evidence-based treatment. Like the evidence has not been in our favor. Mm. A lot of evidence-based treatments have not been tested in people of color. Yep. And who knows if you would want them to write within ethical research practices. And so there's lots of reasons why most of the people who walk through our doors are white people with means. And so 
when I'm bringing in the type of people that I want to see in the center, they're already facing systemic challenges. And mm. then, and, and these are all like nice people that mean well. And always. so it's the, uh, yeah, well, not always, <laughs> oh, but yeah, a lot okay. of time it I'm is people 80%. here that mean well. And so, yeah. yeah, it's, you have to be mindful and intentional about proximity and not yeah. everybody understands that. So I get you. Mm. I feel that. Yeah. That makes sense. So I guess to to close it out, um, and this kind of talks with like themes that we had talked about before. What uh, if you could give advice to like transracial adoptive parents in Utah? Um, what would you say to them? You know, we had a a, a couple on mm-hmm. a few months back, Jordan and Chandra, and they shared. You know, they talked about their experience um, with with their children they've adopted and they live in Lehigh and they talked about how, you know, they had, they dealt with some racism at school and one of their kids was attacked and mm-hmm. how just kind of everybody in the community kind of turned on them and, you know, kind of blamed them for the issue and didn't want to talk about uh, the race factor behind it and all these different kinds of things. Um, so I guess for, for people who are going through those experiences or maybe who haven't experienced anything like that, what, um, what advice would you give to just transracial adoptive families in Utah? Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, when I was still working at BYU, one of the most beautiful things I saw was, uh, like, the the BSU was up doing their thing. I don't know. And there was a family who had a, uh, the mother is white. I forget where the dad comes from. But they had adopted this black boy, and the boy saw the BSU in the Wilk, and he just, like, I could see him, like, looking and he would look back to his family. He would look at the students and he would look back. And then he was just like tiptoeing over. <laughs> and then he was like, I don't know, practically sitting in somebody's lap. And so when his family came over, I was like, you know, thank you for bringing him here. And his mom was like, he brought himself over here. <laughs> like we didn't do anything. Yeah. And, you know, that that created a like meaningful relationship building with that family and the students at BYU, which has been um, really beautiful to see over the years. But then sometimes I think, like, why let that kid seek out his community? Like, bring him closer to people that you know that he can see himself in and uh, not... Uh, be afraid like I watched uh, This Is Us you remember Mandy Moore yes she got all like whatever Mm -hmm. about talking to the black ladies at the pool the black ladies at the pool were like there's just things that you need to know that you might not understand that we've experienced in a different way so I'd say not to be afraid of that proximity it doesn't challenge you as a parent but also like do the work of not making it as effortful for your kid to do that because that's some of the things that feeds into that sense of isolation. Mm -hmm. Kids know who they are. Like I often say that my daughter, my daughter knows that she is biracial. She says that she is black and white, a hundred percent, a hundred percent black, a hundred (laughs) percent white. She could pick out biracial people versus light-skinned black people. That's good. Even that's though cool. wow, they look up here? the that's same. Impressive. Growing up here, <laughs> she's able to do that because yeah. I feel like I even struggle with that. So that's yeah. really good. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, she yeah. uses some heuristic that I use. I don't know, but like, I mean, maybe none of us know, but like, yeah. she th- they're, they're different to her and she knows it. Mm. And so it's so important. For, and she's been doing that since she was like three or four years old. And so these wow. kids know themselves. And so don't make it effortful for them to see themselves. That's my 
It's the generation of the future. What's the next generation supposed to be called? Gen Alpha. Gen Alpha. Gen Alpha. Yeah, that's kind of scary. I don't Uh know why, but Alpha, I'm like, oh, Mm. which they kind of seem like the scary version of Gen Z, which is, I'm a Gen Z, um, technically, Uh but it's just like, I'm just kind of scared of them. Like, I think they're good, but I'm a little scared. Anyway. Because Gen (laughs) Z, I'm I'm like right on the cusp. I'm I'm Mm. a zillennial or whatever you call it. Um, And yeah, Gen Z, we... We do not care at all. Like we, we just want the truth. Oh my we gosh. want the facts. I the feel that way every day at work. <laughs> every day at work, I feel that Give way. I'm just like, so I'm wow, a- you guys care a lot more than we do. <laughs> if this is a room full of Gen Z people making these decisions, it would not go this way. Right. But obviously, you guys have more experience in corporate than we do. But um, mm-hmm. I just think wonder? it's... Yeah, I just think it's interesting because you're right. Our generation mm-hmm. does not care. Like my boss asked me my opinion on this thing and I was like, I'm a 24-year-old liberal not messing with capitalism person, what do you think my opinion is on this? Like, yeah. do you want me to tell you what I really think or or what? Like, I'm like, this is what it's going to come out as. He's like, no, I, I need to hear. I need to hear. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you what I really think and what I really would do. Okay. But obviously, you're not. You're in charge, not me. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so Gen Z is this dope. Just imagine what uh, what your kids are going to do with Gen exactly. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a good time. Ooh, not too much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah, just proximity, being, not being afraid to, to bring your children around. I think that's that's hugely important, and that's that's why actually one of the reasons I started was called BSU Junior at BYU. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was president there the first time, I started a program where basically we invited um, black kids from the community in Utah to come and hang out with BSU students because I was like these kids need to see themselves ref- see themselves reflected in in positions, you know. I guess students or or what have you. And I remember, you know, we've had a lot of good times with that. The first one was pretty small. It was just like in a little room tucked away in the corner. Um, and, you know, I think now it's it's to the point where, you know, we've got, um, I think the, the last one that I did, there were like 70, 60 or 70 kids mm-hmm. there. And then with all of their parents and they got to play in the BYU athletics, like the gymnastics room and just yeah. jump around, people getting haircuts and mm-hmm. um you know, that's so important to be mm-hmm. able to, to see yes, not legacy. just like older black kids, uh, but also to see like kids your age and just be like, I'm not the only one. Like, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And I remember when I was a kid, um, whenever I saw like an older person, I'd be like, oh, they're so cool or I want to be like them. And it's just that feeling of awe. And so I kind of wanted that same thing because it's for it's very formative. So mm-hmm. that's very, that. very important. I love what y'all have done. It's so beautiful. And yeah. like black identity is not like a static thing. So there, you know, there comes a time where like kids only want to be around other black people. Mm-hmm. And that might be hard for, uh, the, you know, parents that don't share the same identity, but mm-hmm. for many marginalized communities, that's the same. I mean, there's times where we don't want to be around like other kinds of people. Yeah. And so um, we can all experience these times. I guess that's the other thing that I would say that like, you know, you see all these things out there about like, oh, you can't ask a black person this or that, or like you can't expect them to educate you. And what I usually say to people is like, recognize that you might not catch everybody at a time that they have the energy Mm -hmm. to educate you. So sometimes you will and sometimes you won't. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't reach out for people that can be in your child's life, but not everybody is going to have the energy to give that to you. And so you should be able to respect that while also uh, continuing to do the work that you need to do. Mm-hmm. So. Best cue, just be like the, what's his name, Jacob from Abbott Elementary? Just be like him. Oh, 
<laughs> if all white people were like him, we'd be all right. I like him because he tries. He uh -huh. makes mistakes. He, he uh, accepts correction. Yeah, you know, he's not afraid like to mess him. up either. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Cool. Kay. Well, I think that's about all we got. Okay. Thank you so much for, for coming on, doing the interview. Thank it's you. been amazing to learn from you. I've learned a lot. Thank you. It's oh, always good to see yes. you guys. Yeah. And uh, um, we're gonna close it out with some recommendations. Mm -hmm. Rachel, you want to go first? <laughs> if not, I can go. I got my yes, ready already. I can go first. I'm you laughing, guys, because of what we talked about before we started recording. Oh yeah. Um, you do your special recommendation. Yes. <laughs> my recommendation for the week is to try weed in California. Um, I did that this weekend, and it was it was magical. It changed my life. I know all the songs that people wrote. I understand. And um, that's my recommendation. If um, Obviously, if you're of age or whatever. Um, but uh, <laughs> that is that is my recommendation. It was life-changing. And everyone needs uh, that little piece, especially as a girl with anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, I really do see the, the benefits in plant medicine. So that, that's my recommendation for the week. Absolutely. Nate? And before you criticize, uh, you know, or think negatively about using weed, just think weed versus Vicodin or... Um, what is some other? I don't know. Whatever people be taking to like relieve I mean, their anxiety and stuff. All, I'm not yeah. saying that those are. Oh bad. yeah, all the other. I'm I mean, other like, anxiety medication like um what you and yeah, I yeah. better I'm than Greenwood. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, like, no, I'm, I'm not going to go into this because y'all are deep in defense. Live your life. Oh, I'm not in defense. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm good. Okay. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Okay. I'm good. Well, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, you know, I feel like people have a stigma about marijuana because it's been illegal for so for long. Sure. But, you know, it's just like a natural form of, of like an anxiety medication or, you know, it, it can have that use. Right. It's just a way of kind of relieving anxiety, helping you to relax, all that kind of Think stuff. Think about the system that mm. made it bad and okay. who that exactly. benefited. Okay. Anyways, if you don't like marijuana, you're on. racist. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> you say that. Honestly, <laughs> That's yes. All it is. Well, and and honestly, side note, something we were talking about this weekend was like not just um making it illegal but also decriminalizing it mm -hmm. yeah. as mm -hmm. well which i never really understood the difference but that's also really important for i mean, know that it's a state issue but eventually if we got to the federal level not just it needs to be decriminalized so the yeah. people who are in jail for it now for previous laws um get mm -hmm. released um, and not just like making it good for us but making it good for the people in the past mm -hmm. so and the three strike law all of that stuff needs to be yeah. gone but Ooh, my recommendation is to check out, uh, and we've already mentioned him today, but Dr. Jacob Rue. Yay! Oh, my gosh. He published his article. Um, that he published an article with Grace Solberg and Michael Wood. Uh, it's called Making Space Behind the Veil, Black Agency Within a Predominantly White Religion. And um, it, it represents years of research that he did about the black LDS experience. So, like, what it's like to be a black member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and I actually got the chance to read it before it was published. And it's an amazing article. And it was very validating for me because I was like, man, this is, this is, you know, this is how I feel. You know, these feelings, I've seen this reflected in myself. I've seen it in others. And it basically just talks about um, different ways that people cope or, or realize their identities within the church. So some mm. people will just kind of like, set aside their black identity mm. to, to have it replaced or overcompensated with being LDS. Mm. And there's some people who find a way to balance the two. There's some people who leave the LDS identity behind all the way. So it's kind of like a, a scale, like a sliding scale of, of different ways that people um, are black within the LDS church. It's a very fascinating article. Um, and it's in the journal for the scientific study of religion. So if you get a chance to check that out, 
please do. Um, you can also just look it up on uh, Dr. Rue's Twitter. If you just type in Jacob S. Rue, R-U-G-H, mm-hmm. you can find it all over his Twitter account. So check that out. That's a good man. That's my recommendation. Great man. Kimberly, what you got? All right, I have two recommendations. Come on. Guys, I forgot that I'm in a book that is coming out. And it oh. is entitled, well, yeah, it is entitled No Divisions Among You. So it's an essay compilation okay. of different uh, LDS people reflecting on the problem of unity and division in the church. Mm, a lot okay. of heavy hitters talking about okay. like how politics has killed us. Mm. There are lots of good ones. Okay, in I want to read this. So yeah. is- no divisions yeah, I think you can you. pre-order it now at Deseret okay. Book. But yeah, I'm in that, so get it. And I think the proceeds are going to some charity. Get it. Charity. No divisions among you. Oh, and it's coming out with a Desiree book? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I Can we no petition royalties. that the proceeds go to black members of the church? They, they're they going Come to on, some kind <laughs> of... Come on, Desiree. <laughs> it's, I'm like, okay. it's somewhere good. That's for sure. Okay, that's so good. like that's one recommendation. But the other thing I was thinking about, one of the best depictions of... Like the nuances of black identity and black journeys that I've seen is uh, Spike Lee's recording of Passing Strange, the musical. Ah, it's so good. Probably mm. best enjoyed with some California weed, but also <laughs> if you do not, <laughs> it is still um, wonderful and a good thing to watch for Pride Month too, because it tells a lot of okay. queer stories as well. So Passing mm. Strange. Passing Strange. Love. These are good recommendations, guys. Absolutely recommendations. I feel I like we could combine them, them all, you know, and just it's true. <laughs> do it all at do once. It all <laughs> and have a good, you know, come to Jesus moment. That's what I say. Um, good, good realizations about yourself in those those moments. But um, that's it for us. Thank you for joining us this week again on the podcast. And we'll talk to y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for joining us on the Black Menace podcast today. Make sure to follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Menaces. And make sure to subscribe to our Patreon, the Menace Society, where you can get bonus content from us on the podcast, as well as extra clips from our videos that we film. And don't forget to email us at blackmenacepodcast at gmail.com for menace moments or any other questions that you want us to answer because this show is for you guys thank you and remember always be a menace thank you